Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we have a real treat for you. We are going to be dialoguing with a person who I believe is the best investigative journalist out there, Whitney Webb. We are so pleased to have her. Why is she on? Well, she is on because she has written a new book. It's actually a giant book. It was so big, they had to just cut it into two. It's uh, all, One Nation Under Blackmail. And it's a fascinating book. Uh, it is the third longest book I read. Actually, I'm listening now. Uh, my, the two longer ones, actually, three longer ones. The Bible is longer. Uh, a Course in Miracles is longer. And Atlas Shrugged is longer. <laughs> but hers comes in close. <laughs> yeah. And it's, those books don't have references. Hers does. Uh, and it's actually significantly longer than, than Bobby um, Kennedy's book, um, The Truth About Anthony Fauci, which has, I think, 2,000 to 3,000 references. Hers has over 3,000 references. It's crazy. I mean, this is amazing. But before I get into some more details of this and about winning yourself, I want to give you guys a hint. Uh, as you're uh, aging, one of the things you tend to lose, especially if you're looking at screens all the time, is your far vision. So, and many people have lost it already because for a variety of reasons, we have an epidemic of, of myopia. But if you still have your far vision, one of the, you will lose it if you fail to look in the distance. And what my, my, my strategy was to walk on the beach, get sunshine and fresh air, and I would read books to multitask. And that reading is near vision. And I abuse my near vision. I'm on a screen all day long. So th this, is, does, this does play a part in her book, okay? So, uh, so there is a way that you can listen to books. And Whitney was kind enough to give me a draft version of her book in a Word document. If, if it was a PDF, you can convert a PDF through Word in the, the program Word. And, and that why is that important? Because if you have a Word document, if you have an iPhone, there is a section in there. I just want to tell you how to do this because it's a really neat trick. You go to iPhone and you go to accessibility and settings and in accessibility, you go into spoken content and, there, and you, there's some uh, controls there. You just have to turn on and then an icon will appear on your screen and then that will allow you to read anything on your screen. So if you put the book on your phone, you can actually have your phone read the book to you. It doesn't have to be audible. And, you know, I don't think are, are any of your books going to be audible or Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, in her case, then you can do that too. Uh, but a lot of books aren't in audible form. You know, it's certainly when Whitney gave it to me, it wasn't on the market yet. So I, you know, I wanted to listen to it it's because I wanted to preserve my far vision. So that's just a little trick for you. Uh, so I listened to Whitney's book. I didn't really read it. I listened to it, but it's fascinating. And Whitney is an amazing individual. I've known her for a number of years now and at least her for work. And there's no one I know that, that goes into depth like her. In fact, you're an anomaly. I mean, you're like a, a computer and how you're able to, 
to thank you to keep track of all these disparate and unrelated pieces of measure of information and keep them keep track of them and put connect the dots i mean it's just amazing i don't know anyone else who can do this it's just it's really shocking so i have a fascination with world-class individuals like uh magnus carlson you know who's probably the best chess player of all time and uh, and john carmack who's maybe one of the best computer programmers that ever lived he was the former uh, CTO of Oculus Rift with Meta, formerly Facebook. And there's like world-class poker players, anyone who's the best in what they do. I'm just fascinated as how they got there and how what, what drives them and what is the catalyst for achieving that type of world-class behavior. So Whitney, you fall in that category. Yeah. And you're, you're, a great, you're a great treasure for the community because there's you are capturing pieces of information that just, they're not commonly available. And your perspective, the data you're providing, I mean, you, you're providing a unique service that I can't see anyone else doing. It's really pretty shocking what you, the, 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 and the depth and intensity of the information that you acquire is just, it's just shocking how, how well you put things together. So, um, We'll definitely go into the book a bit, and then you're coming on, I think, for a second interview, so we'll talk about some other fascinations I have, which is the disappearance of information from the internet, which you and I have personally experienced, and you know, I really want to go dive deep on that because it's important to understand how we got here and what this means for Absolutely. the future of humanity, because they are disappearing the knowledge. They're burning the Library of Alexandria. They absolutely are, and, and I've seen it just in the last few years. I mean, it's just gone, gone, mm -hmm. gone. And it's not that it's, it's gone because they've thrown the keys away. Mm -hmm. You know, it still exists, but unless you have the index, you're never going to find it or you've downloaded it previously because they, they're not essentially right. destroying the websites, but they're destroying the index to it <laughs> or eliminating it. So, and I, hopefully that'll change, but anyway, I'd like to understand how a person like you was able to achieve your level of excellence. So, you know, so I wonder if you can give us a little bit of your history to help understand what motivates you to do this, because it's extraordinary. You have to have the utmost dedication and commitment to get this type of information out. I mean, you've got to be driven beyond <laughs> reason is for something's driving you and i'd like to understand what that is so maybe if you can give us a bit a bit of your backstory you know i i do know from listening to some of your previous interviews that you actually grew up in florida and don't have I a did. passion for it right now even though I, I you know many of us do i i was grew up in <clears throat> chicago and i love florida beyond what you can possibly imagine just for, I mean, there's a climate perspective, but also, you know, the freedom compared to Illinois is just diametrically polar opposite. So maybe, you know, because tell us what happened in Florida and then, you know, how you got to be an itinerant. You're living in Chile, Chile now. And mm -hmm. uh, in the because <laughs> it's still as to, actually you're in the southern hemisphere. So which yeah. is why we see many of you. We see you in winter clothes in this in the middle of the summer. Yes, because <laughs> <laughs> it's winter here. Well, right. coming out of winter now, I guess. Yeah, you're going you're going into spring and we're going into fall yeah. as we're recording mm -hmm. this. So so I, um, so what if you, if you wouldn't mind, if you can give us some of the backstory, it would, it would be really great. 
Okay. Well, I, I'm not really used to talking about myself uh, in, in interviews, just because I try and keep a focus on, on the work I do more than like the person doing the work. Right. Um, because I think, um, you know, in, in independent media to a large degree, and this is certainly isn't true everyone, but there are some people who, you know, may like to make it about them. And, um, you know, I'm just not that type. Um, I don't really like the spotlight. I don't even really like, like to do interviews that much. Cause I, I'm kind of, uh, adverse to public speaking. <laughs> like I, I, uh, if I didn't you, have to do it, I probably wouldn't do. Are you an introvert? Would you consider yourself an introvert? You know, I didn't used to be, but I think it just sort of became that way with time. And I guess I sort of got used to that as I, uh, was living in Latin America. Um, I've been in Latin America probably for like 10 years now. And my Spanish like wasn't great at the beginning. So I just got used to listening a lot more when I lived in the U S I was a lot more extroverted, <laughs> uh, initially. Um, I also worked in food service for a while, um, even though I had college degrees, but you know, I, I graduated, um, you know, in the middle of, you know, the recessions and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, labor market wasn't great. So you have to be kind of extroverted to do that kind of work. Um, well, so, um, Anyway, I don't know how far you want me to go back, really, but, um, you know, I went well, to. Uh, you need to to help us understand what what happened in your brain to inspire you and motivate you to pursue this line of work. Um, you, well, I guess it, okay, it appears so... you, you really want justice served. I mean, there's you, you must have been experienced some injustice in your life. To have uh, yeah, so that's that's true. But I don't know how personal I, I want to get just because, you know, um, my parents are still alive and I don't want to cause any complications. Um, but I um, in my personal circumstances growing up had one parent that uh, I felt uh, did not uh, treat me or my sister very nicely. And, um, you know, I definitely grew up sort of feeling, um, that there was an injustice being, uh, done or that had been done. And, um, I ended up not really trusting adults very much at all. Um, you know, I had maybe like one teacher at school that I trusted, like was the adult I trusted. But, you know, as I got older, that trust ended up being uh, betrayed also. So I sort of um, didn't really believe, <laughs> you know, grownups, I guess you could say, um, and, and, you know, decided to sort of, um, you know, analyze and make my own, um, opinions instead of taking the words of, I guess, uh, others for it. Um, and, you know, I, I questioned some big events of the time. So I'm, um, 32 right now. So, you know, I was relatively young when 9-11 and, and the Iraq war happened and all of that and remembered, you know, not exactly buying the, the narratives at the time, even though I was, I was pretty young, probably because of my, um, experience growing up. So I, um, you know, it was, it was a little complicated in, in Florida for sure. And it's part of why I haven't really been back in a long time. Uh, the weather is nice, but then again, when you grow up in Florida, I think it's kind of common that people try to go to climates very opposite to where, uh, <laughs> they may have grown up. So, you know, I don't, I don't really like extreme heat and humidity. So, you know, I'm now in Chile, which is sort of like, the Pacific Northwest in terms of, of climate. So it's again, radically different, like, you know, Florida and Chicago, yeah, as yeah. you brought up. Um, so anyway, in, in, in college, I was originally uh, majoring in biology and I ended up double majoring 
Um, so I was in, in, in biology, I was very interested in the environmental crisis, uh, caused by factory farming. And, um, I was, I also had uh, a couple things happen. One of them was a vaccine injury when I was in college, um, which from the, from the swine flu experimental vaccine. Yeah. Cause I I was like a sophomore, I think in 2009, uh, in college and I was pressured to take it because they were quarantining, um, kids randomly at my school, like locking them up and not letting them outside for like weeks and stuff. Um, a harbinger of COVID-19 <laughs> really similar. But before that point I had, um, not questioned vaccines. Like I didn't think that, you know, I didn't think pharmaceutical corrupt. I mean, I knew about big pharma corruption, but I didn't think our government would have allowed things that, aren't safe onto the market at the time. And so I, uh, was basically in, uh, I had a really high fever and passed out in my bed for two days and my roommate and I weren't very close. Uh, so she just thought I'd like partied or something (laughs) (laughs) and had like left me there, but I had a really hard time recovering from that. Like I had to drop out of a class and some stuff. And I had a really rigorous schedule. Cause like I said, I was, I was double majoring. So I started to question some stuff with that. And, um, and then I was uh, in my other major, I, I got, uh, I was originally, um, doing like East Asian religion and it sort of ended up going and do a different, uh, I ended up getting more interested in like American civil religion and, and, uh, Christianity and stuff like that by the end of it. And it got too political and I was sort of being told not to go down those avenues, which I didn't like. So that's sort of, I guess, the beginning of um, me, you know, some of the events, I guess, that led me to question some stuff. And then I developed a chronic um, health issue while I was in university that may have been, you know, caused by some other things that, that went on at the time, um, that was, uh, related to digestive health. It was like a candida albicans issue. Um, and so I went to doctors in the U S why I still live there uh, for a long time. And I, well, not a long time, but several times and was like, there's definitely something wrong with me, but I don't know what it is, you know? And, um, eventually, you know, they were just like, you're fine. And I was like, no, I'm not. And I think this is something that happens to a lot of people in the U S that have like chronic issues is that they're just gaslighted about having issues because if it's like a medical issue that, um, you know, Western Rockefeller medicine, doesn't recognize and they just act like it doesn't exist basically. Um, so I ended up being sort of taken by life circumstances in, in my efforts to figure out what was wrong with me and like not feel sick all the time, um, to Latin America. And I, I worked on a, a farm for a while in Peru that was owned by an American lady. Um, and ended up just sort of, uh, staying around here. I eventually went a little farther South from Peru to, to Chile. Did, did your candidate symptoms resolve when at the farm? Well, I, I didn't know what it was and it wasn't until maybe 2014 that I figured out what the issue was because I didn't know I, I couldn't eat sugar. Right. So I was eating healthier on the farm for sure. And it helped a lot, but I didn't like under, I still didn't know what it was because I was just sort of grasping in the dark and I didn't really have the financial, uh, ability to like seek, yeah. you know, help. Classic. Um, yeah. And I think that happens to a lot of people, you know, the standard American diet sort of causes a lot of, yeah. a lot of problems and they don't inform you about it. And then when you try and 
get help. They're like, they just deny there's any issue. Um, and you have to go to sort of uh, practitioners that are almost always, you know, insurance won't cover it because they're not recognized as, you know, uh, real doctors by this. I mean, it's just a mess. So anyway, I became acutely aware of a lot of these types of issues with, with healthcare, uh, and, and big pharma and also, um, you know, the environmental issues and also some political stuff, um, in, in relation to my thesis for my religion major and it all sort of, uh, <laughs> that's sort of what ended up happening. But I, I, I spent so many years sort of like grasping for answers and trying to like recover my health when I should have been technically like in the prime of, of my life. I don't know. I mean, there's just a lot of things you realize as you start to investigate that stuff, like how, um, many people have been, for lack of a better word, uh, screwed over or had things robbed from them. Uh, mm-hmm. and sometimes their lives or their loved ones, uh, you know, on the extreme end, but it can be something, you know, even significantly more minor, like it was in, in my case. And just like, obviously it was a system that isn't working for people and it's not designed to work for people. It's designed to weaken people, uh, for the benefit of the powerful. So, um, I don't want to live in a world like that. And now I have kids and I don't want them to live in that world. And what's, um, I've noticed over the past several years, especially is the amount of um, attention of um, dangerous people with power targeting targeting children uh, to significant degrees. And I mean, the food system's part of that, but I think it's quite clear to most Americans now that it goes far beyond uh, things like that even now, Um, though, you know, obviously that's that's one factor of it. but really, um, you know, these sort of things can't continue. And, and to paraphrase, I, I forget exactly who said the quote, but something about, uh, I think it was actually Napoleon, <laughs> uh, that uh, the world suffers a lot because of the silence of, of good people. You know, uh, more of us have to have to speak up. Um, and so I, you know, uh, felt that way and felt like, you know, knowing the stuff I sort of had to do something, uh, thankfully for me, it eventually turned in into, um, a career, but it wasn't, you know, always like that. Um, I had to work. Wasn't by design. Uh, no, it wasn't planned. (laughs) I wanted to stay and just do farming and gardening and stuff. I really, um, enjoy that. Um, and wanted to do something I enjoyed for a living. I didn't want to, you know, be stuck, you know, uh, doing laboring away, spending my entire life doing something I didn't enjoy. So, you know, I enjoy gardening. I also enjoy writing about the stuff and researching it. So, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in that sense. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. And with respect to the catalyst for your entry into this was the the challenge with the yeast problem, because that's actually what, uh, got me into natural medicine was, uh, uh, a patient I had who was it was a child must have been two or three years old and had classic chronic yeast syndrome so there was a f- physician William Crook um, who wrote the book the East Connection I don't know if you've heard of him he, he's passed a long probably two decades ago by now and um, he had read his book and I thought well I'll try this and part of his protocol was using an antifungal <laughs> called diflucan at the time and I tried it and it failed. And I said, oh, this can't work. <laughs> but then, then I, I, at least I tried that initially when, um, like five or six years ago, before, when I just started, and I just assumed that his, his, his approach was hogwash. And then I re-examined it and then implemented the dietary suggestions he, he, he had. And then more importantly, connected with a group of 
like-minded physicians. At that time, it was the American Academy of Environmental Medicine and started going, connecting with them and learning from what they were doing. It was such a treat to understand that there's other physicians who held this perspective. And uh, that really was the catalyst for me entering natural medicine and starting it from there. So I'm wondering, because um, people are sometimes curious of how did I, you know, I, I didn't always have this. I was brainwashed when I went to med school, like almost every other medical student into, the, into Rockefeller medicine. That's probably the best way to describe it. I've actually written mm-hmm. a chapter in my new book on that. As you, as you well know, I mean, he's the catalyst for the transformation of American medicine, primarily through the founding of the uh, Flexner Report in 1910, mm-hmm. and uh, really capturing the regulatory agencies and right. and having complete control over what happened and eliminating almost every single form of natural medicine from the, from the medical school curriculum. It was just just taught drugs. That was the only only option. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, I got brainwashed in that system and it came out of it. It's thanks to this yeast connection. So did, did if you were your are your symptoms better completely now and you resolved it? Yeah, I mean it took a couple couple years of um or you know, extreme dietary change. I, I understand, you know, that some people with more resources than I had at the time are able to do more than just diet. Uh, but I, you know, no, that's the best <laughs> to go the, the cheap route. And it, it really was the most um most important for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was really debilitating when I lived in the U S I felt like I was going to die. So that's why it it became really like, um, you know, I took an extreme step of moving basically to another continent because I didn't know what else to do because I couldn't get help in the U S I, I couldn't, um, really afford to live effectively. I, you know, I didn't have, um, financial support for my parents, you know, so it was very complicated, uh, time in my life. And uh, I just didn't really feel like I had any other options. So I was like, well, you know, uh, helping run an organic farm, I'll go do that. And <laughs> I don't know if it does something. And, you know, it did, um, yeah. even though I still didn't have uh, all the answers um, at that point. But, you know, okay, yeah, so you have to start now, somewhere. Now we know the motivation and the uh, desire to to perform what to do what you do. But it doesn't explain your ability to do what you do, because most people you're like a supercomputer. Most people do not have that the intelligence and the mental acuity to keep all these things straight and put them all together and, and, and do that. I mean, what do you, what, what do you attribute that to? I mean, it's, it, do you think you're just born that way? Is it a vaccine injury or wow? What is it? What is it? <laughs> um, well, actually uh, the vaccine in- injury uh, did affect my ability to do this kind of work. And it was really upsetting uh, for a long time because I just felt like uh, abilities that were there, to do like intellectual work quickly, like Mm -hmm. were negatively affected by that. Um, yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, but in terms of where it started, I mean, I guess I, it's just something I've always had. I, uh, you know, was technically a year ahead in school. Um, but my mom wanted me to be with kids, my, my own age. So I ended up, um, you know, uh, doing like second grade twice, not because I need to be held back or anything, just because she didn't like the idea of me, um, being with older kids, um, for whatever reason. And when I was little, I, I did get like bullied (laughs) in like early elementary school, um, because I did really well and I was already a year ahead and I had, you know, there was a kid in the class that was older than me and didn't do so well. And like, didn't like that. And I was really tiny, obviously. (laughs) And, you know, uh, so maybe that was why she wanted them. 
uh, to do that. And, you know, I went to a, a public magnet school, um, and, you know, did really well, uh, school wise. I went to a, a pretty high ranking, uh, liberal arts school, got, um, um, some, some scholarship money to attend. So I guess I've, you know, had a, a an ability, it? but it doesn't necessarily translate into things like, you know, I did enough, uh, well enough on things like the SAT and, and, you know, tests like that, but I don't think they necessarily test accurately for like all types of intelligence. So I guess for me, I've always had a, it's just been easy for me to do things like pattern recognition and stuff. It has always really been uh, pretty easy, but yeah, the vaccine injury in college, like was really, um, difficult and it's gotten easier with time, but definitely throughout my twenties, I felt like I definitely had like lost something. Um, and I don't know if I recovered it or I just learned how to, uh, work without it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that experience, I mean, once, you know, COVID was here, I was like, no way. (laughs) Like I know what those experimental things do. And I think eventually that particular swine flu vaccine ended up being banned as well. I think because it was causing narcolepsy in Europe or something, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and was taken off the market eventually. So I definitely knew by then to wait and see, but it also like informed how I, um, approached vaccination with my, with my own children, like being more aware of, um, you know, that it's not necessarily the way, the way they sell it, um, to people or the way they, that you're taught how they work. You know, like there can be, um, I mean, I think most people growing up and even, uh, know about adverse reactions most of the time, or don't know they have, it's just something they basically treat vaccines. Like it's a vitamin or something. Um, and that there's no drawback to it is how it's often advertised. So, um, I no longer feel that way because of my personal <laughs> experience and obviously what's happened over the past couple of years, I think has made it more clear. Yeah. Well, you, at least you got saved from the COVID jab. How is it, how is it in Peru? Are they, did they have lockdowns? Did they, or were you, I think you were in the UK during the pandemic, weren't you? I left Chile for the UK. So I wasn't in Peru for the lockdown. Uh, as I understand it, pretty much all of Latin America had really extreme lockdowns, sort of, uh, the type that were imposed in places like Canada and Australia, mm-hmm. um, pretty extreme. Uh, the UK had a lockdown too, but it wasn't, uh, I mean, you were allowed to like leave your house. <laughs> um, and in Chile, it was very extreme. And Chile ended up um, because of just the extreme messaging and and fear and the uh, excessiveness of the measures that were taken. Um, a, a lot of people ended up taking the vaccine, uh, but I think there's a lot of of shifts here now. Um, even just over the past month, like there's been a vaccine passport in force this whole time. Uh, restaurant unions around the country are saying they're just going to uh, boycott it and risk the fines uh, and stuff uh, because they're just not going to do it anymore. And then uh, I sort of live in a touristic area in the hot springs near the mountains. They mm-hmm. have a union too, and they're all opposing it. And so all this local resistance is starting to bubble up finally. Um, and, you know, more people, uh, most people don't wear masks anymore. And Chile was very masked for a very long time. Uh, and a lot of people are really questioning stuff in a way they weren't before. Um, by the time the third dose rolled around, so many people had had adverse reactions and the media just doesn't cover it at all because it's the media landscape here is very controlled. Um, you know, people started to really not trust what was going on. So I think, you know, based on my experience here, it would be very hard to pull off 
you know, uh, COVID redux pandemic too, as Bill Gates likes to call it, it would be very hard to pull off here again, that type of um, biosecurity stuff, because it only happened because people really believed it because so many people had so much trust in the existing media landscape, which is uh, CNN Chile or, you know, state TV basically (laughs) uh, is the media landscape here. So, you know, there's not much in in ways of independent media, unfortunately. So um, it was definitely very complicated to be here. So, you know, I wanted my daughter to go to daycare. So that's part of why I was in the UK uh, because they closed daycares here. And obviously that's not fair to kids. So, um, you know, but one of the reasons I'm back here is things like cost of living and stuff like that. And because my, my daughter's father is Chilean. So, you know, um, family stuff, it gets a little complicated sometimes. So it's like you're drawn uh, towards the complicated or it's drawn towards you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, life circumstances, you know, things can, can shift. And I don't think anyone really expected uh, COVID until it was here. Right. That whole um, event when it took a lot of people by surprise. So it did. I think people who've been aware and studying this were taken by surprise because they tell you what their, their plans are. And, and you, you know, that they've got, I mean, just like they're doing with the, the great reset in publishing, you know, Klaus Schwab and publishing that and get basically telling us what he, th- what's going to happen. So, you know, in some ways it was predictable. I mean, the specifics were surprising. No, no one was really expecting that unless you got event 201, <laughs> you believed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I don't think people were looking so much at the biosecurity agenda at that point. Um, I think maybe after anthrax and stuff in 2001 for a couple of years, maybe people were. But by the time 2020 rolled around, I think that um, caught a lot of people by surprise. But I think some people were sort of anticipating uh, something. I know by late 2019 in January 2020, um, actually, I uh, did a report about it was titled something like um, how U.S. intelligence is preparing uh, the American public for a failed election in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was before COVID. So I, you know, I, it was basically clear that there was going to be some sort of like what ended up being January 6th, some push for this domestic terror uh, agenda that it was going to be Trump supporters um, and that there was going to be a lot of uh, complications around 2020. That's uh, that stuff was um, out in the open uh, by the end of 2019. And, uh, and and COVID was sort of there in January and you could sort of see that something was going on there, but it wasn't quite clear the extent of, of what was going to go, uh, go on there. But I think some people were anticipating in independent media, some sort of, you know, 9-11 2.0, uh, mm-hmm. but it ended up being sort of like a biosecurity 9-11 as opposed to like some sort of uh, large uh, attack or event. Uh, of All right, that, so that it's, like, it's a good segue to the new book that you wrote, or books, plural, and you, you'll, you, I'll let, give the opportunity to, at the end to discuss the op, the different options one has to, to obtain sure. these books. But the, the book, again, is uh, One World Under Black One Mail. Nation Under Black oh, One Mail. Nation, sorry, sorry, One Nation Under Black Mail, uh, which is, is, a, is a primer. It, it's, it's, it's the encyclopedia to provide the, the framework to understand a big part of this mess. And you go back almost a hundred years to world war two, I think yeah. mm-hmm. in the volume yes. one mm-hmm. where um, you connect the 
uh, or you make the connections between the intelligence community in the United States and organized crime. Mm-hmm. And then to extend that connection, I think you, you've mentioned in previous interviews how there's very few people who are reluctant to accept and believe that these connections exist when you talk about World War II, 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s. Once you start getting into the 80s and above, then you're automatically considered, considered a conspiracy theorist, which interestingly, I believe you can confirm this, but that, that term conspiracy theorist originated in the right after the Kennedy was shot in 63. The Kennedy assassination yeah, with the Warren this, Commission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a, a CIA plot to discredit <laughs> the yes. people who, the truthers back then, who really knew, were opposed to the, the undercover, mm-hmm. the true conspiracy that was there. It wasn't a conspiracy theorist, it was conspiracy fact. So anyway, that, that's the term that stuck. And I, I did think it was related to 63. So thanks for confirming that. But um, the, I mean, I'll let you, I'll let you kind of review the, the broad perspective because there, folks, there are so many details in the book. It's mind, but my head spins when it just go on. It's just like, it's just on. It's literally an encyclopedia, yeah. but it makes so much sense. The, the, the later part of the book is a, is a lot easier to get because it's more contemporary things. And you actually have, have gone through this yourself. You've read it in the news and everything. So you, it, and you, you put all the pieces together, but what is organized crime? Now, is that typically what we consider to be the mafia or is it more extensive than that? Well, at at this point, it's definitely different than it was like in the 20s and 30s, which, of course, is the era that's sort of been glamorized by Hollywood of like what the mob and the mafia were. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, the the mafia and the mob were uh, professional criminals Mm -hmm. that uh, their businesses were basically uh, rackets of illegal activity, uh, most often uh, sex trafficking or prostitution. Uh, and drug smuggling. Uh, And obviously those activities uh, necessitate um, a lot of financial crimes uh, like money laundering, uh, among other things, um, in in order to, uh, you know, expand and maintain those rackets. So that's basically what Oregon, I guess you could say organized crime is in in a nutshell. So you have someone like Epstein, who's the focus of volume two of the book, right? Um, uh, down the line, he's engaging in sex trafficking, but as I point out in the book, he's all, he was also involved in arms trafficking and money laundering to a significant degree. Um, and that's, you know, what these same quote unquote rackets of, of organized crime going back to the twenties and thirties, you know, that was their, uh, the, the, their realms, but also, you know, became the realms of intelligence agencies, not just U S intelligence, though, definitely U S intelligence has engaged in those activities, but, uh, several intelligence agencies around the world, uh, specifically intelligence agencies that collaborate or are very allied with the CIA, whether that's intelligence agencies in Latin America, when you're talking about drug smuggling. Uh, and uh, one theme throughout the book is uh, the co-op, the, the different uh, co-op uh, areas and uh, I guess scandals, you could even say, uh, where U.S. and Israeli intelligence have cooperated in the uh, expansion uh, of these rackets or in, you know, things like Iran-Contra, for example, which is probably an accessible scandal to a lot of people. It is a, It was a lot more extensive than just, you know, arms for hostages situation. But at the end of the day, it was in arms trafficking and also drug trafficking 
a situation with the idea of financing secret wars uh, around the globe with a focus on the Contras in Nicaragua, but also elsewhere. And, you know, that's U.S. and Israeli intelligence. And as I pointed out in, in the book, the um, the sort of fusion of organizing, uh, organized crime and intelligence uh, became formalized in World War II in something that's known as Operation Underworld, where the Office of Naval Intelligence with the CIA's precursor, the OSS, uh, formally uh, aligned themselves with um, the New York mob or what was at the time referred to as the national crime syndicate which was basically a merger of the jewish mob and the italian mafia was this was this pre-world war ii this took place specifically in world war ii and the reason though it happened is because the mob had taken over most of the unions and in doing so they had also taken over most of the democratic party uh as their power base was Mm -hmm. you know unions Mm -hmm. uh, at the time so the mob took over the unions and then they took basically control of the democratic party in new york and that preceded operation underworld so um is that is that what you consider as the for formation of the intelligence committee in the United States? So the first like formal intelligence, well, it's complicated because, you know, there were sort of like intelligence agencies, but nothing like the CIA. So if you want to talk about something like the CIA, its origins uh, were with the um, the coordinator of information office, and which became the Office of Strategic Services uh, relatively quickly, which was uh, controlled by William Donovan, who was the director of the OSS. Um, and then in 1947, uh, you know, those networks developed as part of the OSS essentially, you know, were um, maintained and, and become the CIA. So, uh, but, but before then you have things like, you know, the FBI precedes World War II and some of these other uh, agencies, uh, the precursor to the DEA, uh, the FBN was around. And so some of these agencies that were in theory, law enforcement, as well as intelligence agencies existed, but sort of a centralized thing, you know, central intelligence agency, that's what the CIA stands for. So it was the centralization of, um, you know, mostly, mostly a 20th century phenomenon though. Yeah, mostly. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking. Anyway, after I sort of lay out that stuff in the book, um, one of the, I guess, the main themes of the book in, in keeping with, with Jeffrey Epstein is to show how sexual blackmail um, is something that was used by organized crime even before U.S. intelligence existed. And then they get together and they essentially start cooperating in a lot of these rackets, right? Um so as I mentioned earlier, things like sex trafficking, arms trafficking, d- drugs trafficking, you know, they, they sort of fuse together and have this symbiotic relationship around all of those rackets. But one of the ways they protect those rackets and expand them is by compromising powerful people. Um, a lot of times politicians with a focus on, on congressmen and also presidents um, uh, as you go down the line. So I'm basically tracing the continuity of those activities and those rackets and a lot of these same financial crimes uh, well beyond when these groups came together, you know, I go through and and point to numerous examples of the same uh, groups and the same people um, from then through the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, and then getting to the eighties and all of that. Uh, So what I'm basically trying to do is show that this, you know, people in the U S are aware that uh, there was a point where organized crime was known to have had a lot of influence and clout and power in the United States. And unfortunately, people have been, uh, I guess you could say, brainwashed uh, to believe that it's gone. Uh, And that's not what happened. Uh, Instead, sexual blackmail took over our law enforcement agencies um, 
at a very early stage with the blackmail of J. Edgar Hoover, who himself was also very into blackmail and blackmailed other people. Um, because essentially what this boils down to is that this is control of uh, information and access to privileged information and the weaponization of information at the end of the day. And that's sort of what blackmail is. Um, in a sense. Uh, so you're, you're having, you know, these wars over information uh, at the end of the day. And we see that now with like the internet age, for example, which you sort of uh, touched on earlier. Um, but, you know, at this very early stage, you had the head of law enforcement of, uh, you know, of the FBI uh, completely compromised by organized crime. And he refused to go after organized crime uh, pretty much the whole time he was FBI director, which he was for the majority uh, you know, I, you could even argue of the, I guess, of the 20th century, uh, the 20th century. Well, one of the uh, points you, you brought out in an earlier interview that you had uh, was that in reference to the, uh, the ostensible appearance that organized crime is being uh, diminished, when these new stories emerge, uh, it's actually just a cover because that's what's happening is a consolidation of organized exactly. crime. Yeah. So, yeah. So you can expand on that because you, you've covered this so well. Sure. So, you know, basically um, the people that are most powerful in, in these rackets, you know, especially the organized criminals in bed with intelligence, uh, they have state protection in a sense for their rackets. So that is a huge boon for them. And uh, they can often weaponize um it, through their influence and power in the power of the CIA and, and groups like that in the U.S., um, have their competition taken out. And this is something that's been going on for a very long time. Uh, for example, uh, one ex early example I give in the book is uh, Thomas Dewey, um, who was a... Um, uh, he was eventually governor of New York and was a contender uh, for U.S. president at one point. But he also he became famous as a prosecutor of organized crime. And he was actually involved in uh, um, Operation Underworld, which was the alliance of intelligence and organized crime. He later becomes a business partner of the mob himself uh, by the by the 50s and, and 60s. Um, but his prosecutor, his time as prosecutor and another guy, politician that also became very tied with organized crime uh, named uh, O'Dwyer. I'm forgetting his first name. I think it's uh, I can't remember. Uh, but he was mayor of New York uh, for an extended period of time. Um, these two guys were prosecuting a, a mobster and they were praised in the media like the New York Times as being tough on crime and all of this stuff. Um, but really, that particular mobster, they were um going after who, if uh, I believe his name was a uh, Lepke um, Bjorkalter or something. I can't, uh, not exactly the best at pronouncing these names maybe, <laughs> but um, remember, he had but basically been consigned to death by all the other guys in the mob. They wanted him out anyway. And so he was sold out uh, and they took over his territory. Uh, but these prosecutors were praised as tough on crime and they're elected on this tough of crime image, but really they're in bed with organized crime. And you see this with someone like Rudolph Giuliani, uh, decades later in the 1980s, you know, he's prosecuting Italian organized crime, but becoming very close to other sides of, you know, the, the national crime syndicate as it existed in that period. And he's consolidating territory by only going after certain uh, mobsters whose time had, had essentially already set. You know, um, and then he has this tough on crime image that he uses to build his political career uh, while still having these alliances, you know, behind closed doors. And this is a recurring theme. Yeah, things are not always as they appear to be. And thankfully, mm -hmm. we have people like Whitney to help us uh, 
understand <laughs> what's really going on. So uh, uh, just a curiosity question from your perspective, the, what is your best guess as to where all this wealth accumulation is going? You've got massive amounts of revenues being generated through these activities. And in I think in your book, you talk about, you, you go deep into the Iran-Contra issue and, and how uh, I believe Congress refused to fund some of these activities. So that's seemed to be a catalyst for a lot of, a lot of how these yeah. processes got started. And in that, in that case, it was funding uh, U.S. imperialism and overtaking other countries. But, but so that would be one ostensible use of the funds. But can you maybe elaborate on where is all this wealth accumulation going? Yeah. Okay. So, so Epstein is a really good vehicle for exploring this. Um, and he's the reason I started writing this book and it's sort of expanded because I'm trying to essentially explain Epstein to people. Um, and I'm like, well, okay, I have to go really far back to explain <laughs> all of this stuff. So it, it makes like a, a very detailed case that makes a lot of sense, but you have to go back in history to, to understand the context and the history, which, you know, a lot of um, Americans don't, and it's not their fault. It's the fault of the media, the education mm -hmm. system. And in all of that. So if you look at Epstein's career, for example, there's, um, you know, uh, things like the savings and loans crisis in the 1980s, for example, which was a huge wealth transfer uh, to specific, I mean, uh, according to people like Houston Post, uh, Pete Bruton, who wrote a story on it, uh, or a, a, a book on this, it was intelligence and organized crime that essentially collaborated um, with major Wall Street banks at the time, like a uh, Drexel Burnham Lambert and some of these other groups and uh, this particular nexus uh, by taking like $6 billion out of the savings and loan industry when it was deregulated, um, basically buy what they didn't already own of corporate America. And so uh, you have the same uh, group, more or less, having compromised politicians uh, through sex blackmail for decades. And, uh, you know, by the time they own corporate America, uh, due to the role that corporate America plays in U.S. politics, they can essentially buy everyone else out, um, you know, at that point in time. Um, it, but like you mentioned earlier in, in, during that same period of time, this network was also, uh, basically finding a way to off the books, finance, um, activities, secret wars, really, uh, all over the globe, not just in Nicaragua at the time, but really find a way to not have to tell or get a congressional approval, uh, to, to finance, uh, you know, proxy armies, uh, and stuff throughout uh, the U.S. And for a long time, this was justified as like, this is necessary to fight the communists. And of course, with the fall of the Soviet Union, that uh, excuse sort of collapses. Um, and from that point, I see these th that power nexus in the 80s. After the fall of the Soviet Union, it, I see that there's two, uh, really a split. And you see it with U.S. politics today. You have people that are sort of uh, hungry for a return to the Reagan era days where America's on top and use these same types of illegal activities to further U.S. imperialism um, with this sort of warped idea of American nationalism. And then you have this other side that's the internationalist camp or the globalists that want global governance. 
and uh, you sort of have them com- competing, but they all really both factions go back to, you know, Iran Contra and these uh, intelligence organized crime groups. That's why the Clintons, for example, uh, you see them being involved in Iran Contra. And uh, I would definitely place them more in the internationalist uh, camp. And I, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, Epstein uh, moved in that direction by the 90s as well. And that sort of uh, explains some of his uh, interactions with the Clinton White House throughout the 1990s which are very scandalous, um, very, very scandalous to a significant degree and have major implications for national security um, in a way that I think really few Americans understand. And I certainly didn't understand until I went about um, and doing the research and writing um, this book. But then you have people sort of rally around Trump, for instance, you have uh, an advisor to him be Reagan's attorney general, Edwin Meese, who was also in the Reagan administration involved in an extreme uh, criminal activity and stuff like that. So, you know, some of the big factions today sort of trace back to this time. So I guess um, I'm getting a little away from your uh, original question, which is what are they doing with the money? Well, we don't really know, but if you look at someone like Epstein, who's was in these financial networks, a key financial criminal, because he's not just a sex criminal. Uh, that that's what they want to paint him as exclusively. He was a financial criminal that dabbled in sex crimes. I mean, that's my conclusion. Um, from the book, but he was very important in these networks of capital. So if you look at where he shifted, you know, he he's involved with Iran Contra, then he gets involved with uh, Clinton White House stuff, then he gets involved after Clinton leaves office with building up this new model of philanthropy uh, that's typified by the Clinton Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's involved with both from a very early stage, specifically in designing the HIV AIDS stuff. Um, And you see him over time getting really involved with uh, eugenics, transhumanism, um, and all of these things. And a lot of these, um, you know, quote unquote, philanthropies are also promoting uh, policies that that lead us in in those directions. Um, And, uh, you know, from a very early stage compared to other players in this scene. You have Epstein in 2012 uh, trying to uh, sell genomic sequences of people to big pharma um, for this gene-tailored medicine that now in the COVID era we're hearing about in a big way. So, um, you know, as you're centralizing control and taking control of all the money, you know, eventually you don't need any more money. It becomes about power and control on how to entrench yourself in that position so that you maintain the status quo that benefits you. And obviously that doesn't benefit the American public that benefits these career criminals. That right? is a powerful, powerful concept. Yeah. Why don't you say so, that again? Because that you, you speak so fast and you have so much information. I just don't want people to lose that because that is a golden pearl. It's okay, not so about, it's not about just about the money. It's more about the power and control. It's about the power and control. And so these people and that's why you see Epstein involved in this from the beginning. It, it starts with a, a total um, foray into healthcare. It's getting into people's bodies uh, first um, and then getting in, you know, into their, their gene sequencing and stuff and really controlling people at a level that is so essentially molecular, right? Which is why um, George Church is one of your favorite researcher, researchers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Epstein and the George Church relationship is definitely uh, disturbing to say the least, but I mean, Epstein and science in general, he was very influential. He was so influential that Bill Gates tapped him to, to get him a Nobel prize 
Bill Gates wanted a Nobel Prize and he taps Jeffrey Epstein to help him get it. He doesn't get it, but that's how he got a meeting with, uh, you know, people that are involved in selecting that prize and, and stuff like that. You know, very influential in the world of philanthropy in a way that I think very few people um understand and it's certainly not talked about because the focus in the mainstream media on Jeffrey Epstein are on the sex crimes that he committed between roughly between 2000 and 2006 and that's literally all they'll talk about and the reason for that is because uh, if you talk about any more about Jeffrey Epstein it unravels quite a lot uh and because and that's because I think he was uh, middle management for a whole bunch of these different rackets I guess you could say um that are tied to, you know, people like Bill Gates and Bill Clinton in a very, very intimate, intimate way. Um, and uh, a way that, you know, these, <laughs> they certainly don't want the truth to come out of, of their, the extent of their relationships with Epstein. Uh, Bill Gates has tried to explain it away like, well, Epstein's dead now, so it doesn't matter what my relationship with Epstein really was. Um, and, and that's not so. Um, and so there is a lot more to come out, but there is, you know, you the, the, the idea is control and that's why they, we're so into um, the, these particular fields because, you know, getting into healthcare um, and dominating health. I mean, you can see it with, you know, the Rockefellers going back to the 20th century. Rockefeller strategy, 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it's my understanding that Rockefeller or, or his associates own 50% of the pharmaceutical companies, 50%. Well, Epstein also had a relatively close relationship with David Rockefeller that has not been scrutinized by mainstream media. Uh, David Rockefeller was in one of uh, Epstein's contact books. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leon Black, a very close associate of Epstein, uh, explained officially in official documents uh, where he's explaining and justifying his relationship with Epstein, says he only got involved with Epstein because David Rockefeller personally appointed Epstein to the board of Rockefeller University. Was, was David um, Rockefeller the most significant Rockefeller in the late 20th century from your point? Uh, yeah, I would probably say by the late 20th century, sure. But, you know, in the there's the Rockefeller brothers, you people like Lawrence Rockefeller and some of the other Rockefeller siblings to David that are also involved in a lot of stuff. But uh, David Rockefeller had created, for example, the Trilateral Commission, yeah, which Epstein was a member of um, and was very involved in the Council on Foreign Relations, which Epstein was also a member of, and they didn't boot him out after he was outed as a pedophile and sex criminal. They kept do, him do, in. Do you, know I like, uh, do you know why I like the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations? Because the front group for front group for them is the CCDH, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, and that's the one that outed me as the most ah, right. most important mm-hmm. super spreader of misinformation in the entire world. <laughs> yeah, well, so they, good uh, on the, you. So essentially, uh, <laughs> that is the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations. You know, that's their their attempt to focus on me, which is uh, I'm impr- I, I like that. She's got to be yeah. going somewhere in the right direction. Right. So, um, you know, it, it, it's pretty complicated stuff at the end of the day, but ultimately what you're seeing with this group over time is that they can't believe they get away with it so often for so long they become so wealthy and so rich that not only do they have this you know they they don't have any use for any more money it's maybe it becomes about power and control but also they see the rest of us as like subhuman because they think we're such saps that they can just screw us over and and loot us and we'll do nothing all the time and a lot of this is you know generational and some of it's not but there are some families involved here where you have several generations of them and they're basically taught that the rest of us are just idiots um and that 
you know, there's this classism there where like we are the elite and we are uh, hurting these people along and they're complete idiots and we can treat them however we want and exploit yeah. them. And you see that also manifest in the sex trafficking activities of, of Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, where Ghislaine Maxwell is calling uh, the, the girls they're trafficking trash and stuff. I mean, but they view all of us like that. Um, yeah. So I, I always hesitate to refer to them in, in my articles as the the, the, glo- the the elite. I just call them the global cabal. And that, you know, so I think well, they see themselves as elite. And a lot of people call them that because they have become an economic elite, but they have become an economic elite through criminal activity, uh, not through honest uh, means, the vast majority of them. And, um, you know, it's it, it's quite disturbing the ri- their rise. And, you know, that's what I try and chronicle in the book, because you can't understand this network. You can't understand Epstein unless you understand this network. And that network precedes Jeffrey Epstein's existence by decades. And it continues even after he is gone. And that's what I want people to really take away from the book. Um, Because we're basically uh, being told by mainstream media that now that Epstein is gone, the one bad billionaire in the world (laughs) has been dealt justice and now everything's fine. Uh, Go back to sleep. And it's it's not so. And um, it's very important to realize the extent of his involvement in financial crimes because those... Uh, financial crimes weren't just perpetrated, you know, it's not like the sex crimes which were perpetrated against, you know, X number of minors. Obviously those are horrific crimes, but the financial crimes, um, pretty much every American has been affected by that. Yeah. To a significant degree. You you talked about the intelligence community overtake in the forties, overtaking the unions and the, and the democratic party at that time, Mm -hmm. it would seem in observing what's happened in the past few years, and especially with the Democratic Party, that that control still exists to this day. But clearly, it's not just the Democratic Party. So I'm wondering if you mm-hmm. can expand on how it's also there really is not much of a difference between the two parties, Republican or Democrat. It's just a distraction to take us away from the reality. So give us give us your take on that. Or is there a difference? I mean, it, it, have they controlled the Democratic Party more effectively than the Republican Party? I think only what I would say is that maybe their control of the Democratic Party happened earlier. And I would say that it definitely happened in New York first and maybe in well in, in New York and Chicago and maybe the West Coast uh, around that point. Yeah, but it started in supposedly how Kennedy got elected in 1960 with Mayor Daniels. Well, it's it, well, it, it, they were very influential, for example, even in the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the career of Harry really? Truman. And people, wow. oh yeah, absolutely. Actually, it was Harry Truman that came and stepped in for that um, uh, mob-linked uh, mayor I mentioned, uh, O'Dwyer. Um, he, uh, Harry Truman uh, basically made him U.S. ambassador to Mexico to shield him from criminal charges related to organized crime activity uh, of his uh, of his office, the mayor's office, on why he was mayor. Um, and then he later had to go back and testify to the the, the Senate Committee on Organized Crime, the Kefauver, uh Committee, uh, <laughs> and was basically guilty of sin. Uh, but Harry Truman had stepped in for that. And that's because at that point, the Democratic Party, especially the New York Democratic Party, which you could argue was one of the most powerful uh, state Uh, factions of the Democratic Party at that time was completely built on a system of what um, I refer to in the book, and it's a quote from something, a a system of unsavory alliances. And that's just the nature of power. 
a lot of this backroom uh, dealing and stuff. It's about deal making. I mean, you hear this sort of with with Donald Trump, right? And it's no coincidence because Donald Trump's mentor was Roy Cohn, whose mm-hmm. father was very instrumental in this whole thing, including the O'Dwyer thing I mentioned, family friends of the Cohn family. And a lot of the people in that world, the power elite, I guess, the people that represent the hidden perhaps power structure of New York City. Um, At that point in time, it was all about deal making. So the art of the deal, as Donald Trump calls it, comes from that. It's about, you know, the deals you make with people. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And they're not necessarily legal or illegal deals. A lot of them are in this gray, murky area between legal and illegal. Um, but you know, it's, that's how, how power has worked, uh, specifically in that city for a very long time. And of course that model has made some people very rich and expanded over time. And it's definitely, uh, impacted the Republican party by this early stage as well. So you're talking about, uh, the forties and fifties, Thomas Dewey, who is one of the figures I mentioned earlier. Um, he's, he gets in bed with the mob. He was going to be, uh, he ran against Eisenhower to be president. He lost, but if he hadn't lost you know yeah. we would have had a mob league president then you can probably um you know make all sorts of arguments about it uh about how many u.s presidents how far back it's gone uh this this mob association but at this point i mean it's very obvious um and i mean you'll hear it with i guess donald trump from the left a lot more talking about the russian mafia but as i point out in the book the supposed russian mafia that donald trump's involved with is really just um robert maxwell's former business partners um so there's a because there's a you know people are aware of the uh earlier stage of the trump epstein maxwell relationship going back to the 90s and trump on maxwell's yacht and stuff so you know he's involved in in that world but the clintons um who, you know, have essentially control and for lack of a better word, or at least rather the donors behind the Clintons still control the DNC uh, today. Um, yeah, they're, uh, I, they're very bad <laughs> in, in a way that like, you know, I'm not trying to absolve Donald Trump and, and say, he's like, I definitely don't feel that way, but I definitely think that the, the crimes of the Clinton family are just so egregious and out of control that it's just stunning to me, uh, well, that they many, have <laughs> been able to, get- to evade, uh, any sort of, uh, legal case. It's just, yeah. it's, it's- and by crimes, I'm, we're talking about deaths. I, 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 is it over 30? Is it over 100, 1,500? How many people? It's are a lot. I, well, I think a lot of people with the so-called Clinton kill, uh, kill list, um, they have it at 30-something, but that doesn't include all the people that died on that uh, flight that Commerce well, Secretary yeah, a, Ron Brown died on, which is about right. 34. So you can definitely, it, it's probably longer than that. But yeah, it's sizable. And some of those deaths aren't necessarily tied to the Clinton. Some of them are tied to me. Arkansas and the drug running that was part of Iran-Contra, which the Clintons um, allowed to knowingly allowed to happen in the state while Clinton was governor. It doesn't mean Clinton, the Clintons themselves were involved in the nut and nuts and bolts of that necessarily, but obviously there's some involvement there. Yeah, so I, um, I think, but yeah, the, 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 this is criminal stuff um, that has, yeah, the, in, you know, the, entrenched the, their power and that particular camp, which is more allied with the internationalist um, side of things have, have just sold the U S down the river in a way that is just mind boggling, uh, yeah, just the, truly mind boggling. The best example of the Clinton death is one that you talk about in your book with Mark Middleton, who's the, I forget his position in the, Clint, the Clinton White House, but was responsible for connecting with Epstein for 17 visits at the White House. 
And he actually was suicided <laughs> earlier this year, right when you were yeah. writing the book. So why don't you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So um, Mark Middleton was special assistant to the chief of staff uh, of the Clinton White House, Mac McClarty. Um, I believe he was recruited around uh, for that position around uh, as part of the 92 election. He was he stood out as a bundler for the Clinton family, which probably means illegal financial activity when you look into Clinton fundraisers uh, in the 80s and 90s. 90s, it's it's suspect. So um, uh, you basically have him being placed in that position because of his role as a finance, a fundraiser uh, during that election cycle. And but by February 1995, he has to resign. Um, and it's the circumstance of his resignation are very suspicious. And the investigation into Mark Middleton is so suspicious that the George W. Bush administration invoked executive privilege for the first time just weeks before 9-11 to keep uh, documents about the investigation into Mark Middleton out of the hands of Congress. And that is astounding because, you know, it's not even the same administration, ostensibly an administration against the corruption of the Clinton era, supposedly, we're told. but invoking executive privilege for the first time to protect a guy that's special assistant to chief of staff. Obviously, Mark Middleton was involved in some very suspect activity. Uh, And those investigations don't deal with Epstein. They deal with other people that Mark Middleton was meeting with while he was meeting with Epstein Um, in the same exact period of time. It's often remembered really only by conservatives today, but remembered as China gate. I think that's sort of a misnomer. China's definitely involved. Um, but it's more fair, I think, to call it Riyadi Gate. Riyadi referring to the family of Mokhtar Riyadi. He's sort of an East Asian oligarch um, of Chinese origin, but they're Indonesian. And uh, they bankrolled the, the Clintons back when Clinton was governor of Arkansas and, and through uh, uh, the, his presidency. Uh, but by the early 90s, had become official business partners of China. So we're involved in... Um, uh, basically infiltrating and targeting the Commerce Department. And this is part of why uh, Commerce Secretary Ron Brown ends up dead in this plane crash in 1996. It's all tied up with the stuff involving Mark Middleton. And Epstein is in the mix of it, uh, in the middle of it. And while Epstein is meeting with Mark Middleton, he is courting uh, the very airline at the center of Iran-Contra and uh, MENA, Arkansas drug running uh, and arms smuggling, Southern Air Transport, uh, to run cargo uh, between China and the U.S., uh, ostensibly for the businesses of Leslie Wexner. But given who he's meeting with at the time and all of this other stuff, um, it points to some sort of illegal arms smuggling into the United States. And a lot of these guns uh, that were Chinese made ended up in the hands of uh, gangs uh, in American inner cities at the same time that the same network created the crack epidemic, which has been reported on by uh, people like the late journalist Gary Webb. No relation, by the way. <laughs> I think he's a hero, but we are not related. A lot of people uh, think that maybe very distantly, but I'm not aware of it. So. So so you basically have the same people not only creating a a, uh, drug epidemic in American inner cities, um, then you have Clinton becoming president. He's creating private prisons to basically create (laughs) a new model of de facto slavery for African-Americans in inner cities arrested on trumped up drug charges for a drug epidemic they created, but also for gang violence um, that they exacerbate by smuggling weapons, illegal weapons into the U.S. from China. 
uh, with the direct, uh, you know, involvement of some of these families and also Chinese military intelligence, which of course, uh, China has a military industrial complex, just like the US and the top companies in that had a business relationship with Epstein going back to the 1980s. So there is a lot of scandalous stuff that went on the Clinton administration that I think most Americans don't even have a handle on anymore. And part of it, conveniently, the investigation into it in Congress that could have unraveled it was totally upended by 9-11. And then, you know, that's why that uh, effort by the Bush administration to stonewall that investigation, you know, they stonewalled it and then it gets memory hold because obviously of of the, um, you know, events during and after September 11th, 2001, obviously took the focus off of Mark Middleton, but Epstein brought a focus back to that. So last December was the first time we got the full visitor logs of Epstein at the White House. And what had previously been thought to have been five meetings with Mark Middleton at the White House turned into um, about 15 and 17 in total for Epstein, Uh, two or three of them were for other events. Actually, one of the, but almost all of them tied to very crazy uh, and very illegal uh, fundraising activity by the Clintons, either in the 92 election or the 96 election. And Epstein was in the middle of of that and, and basically Clinton financial criminality. And then, of course, becomes involved in the creation of the Clinton Foundation after Clinton leaves office, which, as most people know now, is basically their slush fund. Um, so, um, you know, he's an important financial criminal for these people. And there's a reason that uh, so little attention has been paid to his finances. And if you're looking at uh, the Epstein case in the past couple of years, uh, the only innocent person to turn up dead was the son of the judge that was going to oversee the Epstein Deutsche Bank case. Um, There was a hit on that family, the family of the judge, um, that is still very suspect for a number of reasons. but basically, um, you know, all the other people in the Epstein case that have ended up dead in the couple of years had been co-conspirators of Epstein or Epstein himself. Uh, Jean-Luc Burnell, Epstein, I guess now Steve Hoffenberg. And, um, you know, and then you have the son of the judge. They, I don't think they want people going into the Epstein-Deutsche Bank relationship, the Epstein-JP Morgan or Bear Stearns relationship uh, for a number of reasons. And unfortunately, I didn't, didn't get to cover this in the book, but would like to look at it in the future. It seems like Epstein's role in the collapse of Bear Stearns uh, was very significant. And this is troubling because the is collapse that, of Bear Stearns that, basically created, you know, started the 2008 financial 2008 crisis. crisis. I was thinking that was the one, which the is a huge wealth transfer again, just that like was, the 1980s. That was is exponentially bigger than the 1980s. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and of course, no one went to jail. No bank executive went to jail because they're all part of the the, the, the crime syndicate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that just. Touch on how Mark Middleton got taken out in May this year, was it? Yeah, With so sorry, I, I got off track there. So it, it was only property. it was only a couple months after these logs come out and the extent of Epstein's meeting with Mark Middleton uh, become known, but they're not reported on by the US media at all. It's only British media. A handful of outlets and British media cover the Epstein Clinton White House visitor logs with Mark Middleton. And only local news in Arkansas covered Mark Middleton's death. 
not covered by national news, covered again by UK media. But I just find it stunning that Epstein's relationship with the Clinton White House gets zero mainstream media press attention. And I think that should tell you all you need to know. There's obviously something. No coincidence. (laughs) Yeah. And in terms of Mark Middleton's death, uh, also very suspect, Uh, he was found hanging from a tree by the neck. It was an extension cord, not a rope, Uh, shotgun wound to the chest, ruled a suicide. Uh, No pictures or video footage of the death scene is allowed to be made public uh, by a judge order in in Arkansas. So, I mean, it's just nuts, to be honest. And the property, the tree was on where he was found dead is tied to the Clinton Foundation. It's called Heifer International. Yeah, pretty crazy. So amazing stuff you're uncovering, uh, and especially on on these suicided deaths. Uh, What you know, one would think that you might be at personal risk because of you exposing this, this corruption. Uh, but I, I think believe your believe your protection is in part due to the, all this is open source and you're not using any whistleblowers and but what yeah exactly I, and you live in Peru so it's a little bit Chile yeah mm-hmm. I'm sorry Chile, Chile a little bit more difficult to to get you there but are you concerned about your personal safety? Uh, you know, I'm not. And part of that is because I, I just feel like, um, the way to really beat these people is by not being afraid of them. And Mm. I feel like if you even give, uh, give into the fear a little bit, uh, they'll use it to control you or undermine you or destroy you. So if you're looking at something like COVID-19, for example, over the past couple of years, there was a reason that the propaganda was so fear intensive. People who are afraid are easy to control. So even if you know everything about these people, um, if you're afraid of them, they have power over you. And the only way for, you know, not just me, but anyone to be free from them is to be free of fear of them. You can't be scared of these people. Um, Actually, they're scared of us and they're scared of regular people waking up um, because, you know, obviously there's more of us than there are of them Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And if exposed for all their criminality, as I'm trying to do in the book, you know, the more people that are aware of that, the more quickly it can, it it can unravel. And I think, and with a lot of the stuff in the past couple of years, especially, I mean, they've really overplayed their hand. Um, If they did something to me, it would just make my book like a bestseller. Uh, more people would read it. I don't think they want that. And that's why they use the conspiracy theorist thing so much because they don't, when you use that excuse, uh, you're convincing people to laugh at the person and to not engage with their information at all. Um, Because they don't want people to engage with the information. If people start engaging with the information, you know, people are going to make up their own minds and draw their own conclusions. What I've produced in these books are uh, just the facts. It's very well sourced, it, not just in terms of the number of citations, but the quality of the sources. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of um, material there for people to to chew on and, and do their own research and follow whatever lead uh, they want. It's a resource for people and it's a starting point. Um and they don't want people to engage with that type of information because obviously it's not when when they have their narratives about these events, it won't hold up 
because they're not presenting the facts, they're presenting propaganda. Um, so they don't want people to engage with the information. So if they target me, for example, I mean, it's just going to make more people read my book and I don't think they want that. Um, it's easier these days uh, for them to just smear you as a conspiracy theorist um, and make fun of you uh, because they don't want you, people engaging with the information. But at the same time, again, because I think they've overplayed their hand, more people are looking for that information that's counter to their propaganda, uh, just because of the state of the world and things that are going on. A lot of people um, that may not have dabbled in these types of, you know, ideas and uh, histories uh, before are wondering what's going on and, you know, the, the existing narratives, uh, official narratives can't explain things sufficiently for them. So too many people are looking for it and uh, they'll find it. And I don't think they'll um, want to make a martyr of someone <laughs> and have more people read it. It's not, it's um, not so, good, good advice. But I think at the end of the day, though, for, for most people, you can't be afraid of them. Um, it, cause this is a lot of people bring this up and I don't really bring this up that much in my work cause I'm trying to be objective and stuff. But a lot of what we're fighting now is in a sense, uh, people say it too, like a, a, a fight for the soul of the nation, the soul of the world. It's a spiritual war on a level. So if you're giving in to fear, you know, you're losing what, no matter how much knowledge you've accumulated about how things work and how these people are, if you're afraid of them, you're giving them power over you at the end of the day. Yeah. But thanks for being the leader, helping us follow that message. So my favorite chapter of the book is chapter 21, the last chapter, in which you highlight that there likely will not be many, if any, future Epstein types, because they don't need blackmail anymore in the technical sense of how they acquire that information through, through sexual escapades, uh, because they have other ways of acquiring it. So why don't, you, why don't you summarize that chapter? And it's a powerful message, but in, in some ways, and it's also um, somewhat um, distressing because almost it, it, it essentially allows almost all of us to be vulnerable to this type of blackmail. Although, uh, interestingly, for the last, I don't know if you're aware of this, the last year, the New York Times uh, had a team of investigative journalists on me to dig, dig up dirt for for a year from the New York Times, and they didn't find anything. They just they they made a big video documentary for about an hour, and uh, they, they they had no dirt except so the the producers of the film just started interviewing themselves. <laughs> so it was comical. It was really fun. <laughs> but um, well, yeah. So why don't you explain that, how, how they're going to use the technology of the last decade to acquire the, 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 the pieces of information for blackmail instead of guys like Epstein? Sure. So people like Epstein before and a lot of the other people that I, I chronicle sort of in volume one were involved in sex blackmail. Um, uh, just because it was effective for a very long time. But by the time you get around to the, the digital age and technology is so ubiquitous and so commonplace for people, it's not cost effective anymore to maintain an asset like Epstein for the purpose of sexual blackmail. Um, with someone like Epstein or, or his predecessors in, in that particular uh, type of activity, you have to uh, pay for their expenses. You have to pay for the expenses of, of, of the women and girls they're trafficking. You have to pay for expenses to maintain uh, mansions or other locations with these pinhole cameras where wealthy men feel at ease. It's like a party sort of scenario. So they'll let loose and compromise themselves. Um, 
you know, and, and that's just the tip of the ice. I mean, there, there's lots of other expenses and you have to pay off like law enforcement. So they don't, uh, prosecute these guys and all of that stuff. Okay. So in the, in, in the technology age, uh, you just get, uh, put in a line of code or you hack into someone's account about something. And then you have the information right there because most of, uh, most these days, you know, everyone more or less has some sort of incriminating information in their digital footprint that could be used against them. And we willingly give, you know, our, our data away to whoever. And as a major theme in my work outside of this book has been almost all of the big tech companies, if not all of them have some sort of tie to us intelligence, um, either from the, from the off or very early on. Um, so basically we've been allowing them to, you know, profile us. Um, but you know, that may, uh, sound bad for people like, like, and like you mentioned, and I do say this in the book, like now we're all blackmailable in that way because we all have digital footprints and we've been sort of put in these, uh, digital corrals. Uh, but again, like I mentioned earlier, these people see us as subhumans and see us as complete idiots. So they think that we'll just be dependent on this technology because it's easy forever and that we, we've become complete slaves to our own convenience and we'll never take our power back. And it's actually very easy to take your power back. I mean, you don't have, um, to be a total slave to your smartphone or technology really anymore. Um, and they rely on a lot of, uh, the ability to analyze these masses of data on artificial intelligence algorithms that because of the same corruption in corporate America are oversold on their abilities. And they're not actually as good as they say they are. I mean, some of them are powerful, but they're not necessarily like godlike. like some people like to paint artificial intelligence in this space. So, you know, they're relying on, on you, uh, taking your smartphone everywhere you go and using it for everything and, and, you know, basically giving them what they want. And the way to take power back is to reduce that stuff in your life, get uh, local and build parallel systems. Uh, really at the end of the day. And that's something that, that we can all take steps towards um, because, you know, they, they've just become so dependent on these electronic forms of control, blackmail being a form of control. But, you know, a lot has been said in the past couple of years of the digital ID uh, agenda and vaccine passports and central bank digital currencies and where all of that is going to go. Uh, they fully expect us to go very willingly into these new and improved digital corrals that are much more uh, controlling and, and much less free for the people that enter them, but they need us to voluntarily enter it. So you have these dueling fuel and energy crises that are, you know, the obvious intent there is I see it is people who are cold and hungry are more likely to be voluntarily led uh, into these systems. But again, what you see there is that we have to agree to it. And that means that we have agency here and they know it and they can't technically force us, it, it, we have to surrender our power completely uh, to them. And we have all the tools to take it back. We just have to take responsibility and start doing it. And this is why I would really caution people against um, what I see as psychological conditioning, uh, this idea that we have to wait for a political savior, uh, vote for the right person. And as soon as we get the right person in the White House, everything will be fine. Uh, the extent of the corruption is vast uh, and there is no way one person at the White House can undo it all. 
<laughs> um, and what we need are just regular people uh, to take responsibility because so many of us are uh, looking for the good guy versus the bad guy uh, on the on the level of nation nation state leadership. If you don't think Donald Trump's the good guy or Putin's the good guy, you think Biden's the good guy or this guy's the good guy. No, 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 no. The good guys are just the regular people like you and me. And the bad guys are the people most often at the top that have stomped on heads and clawed their way to the heights of power. Generally not nice people, regardless of what nation state you're talking about. It's regular people um, that where you will find the quote unquote good guys you're looking for. And it's time for those people to come together and say enough. And we really can do it. Um, it just is about taking personal responsibility. So, you know, it's not, you're not going to solve all your problems anymore, especially in the United States at the ballot box. It has to be more than that. And personal responsibility is something we all have to take, um, you know, for, for our lives. We can't, we had to take our power back and that starts on an individual level. That was outstanding. I'm going to clip that and put it in a lot of future articles. It's, it was because you don't really discuss that in the book, but yet it, it's, it's the obvious um, conclusion and, and recommendation and, and the endorsement. So thank you for sharing it that way. It's very powerful. It's like, thanks so much. Question on your previous experience, but because you, I, want, I want to get into uh, how you buy your book and support you. And you, right now you're with, you're with Unlimited Hangout right? Is that, that's your website? Unlimited. That's my website. Yeah. yeah I yeah. used to uh, write for Mint Press News. I was going to talk about Mint, Mint Press News. That, I, I like them. I just discovered them recently. And, and there's this writer, Alan McLeod, who who's, mm -hmm. did a real, I'm sure you know him, uh, but mm -hmm. I just recently found him. He did a huge deep dive into intelligence connections with the internet. And I, I'd like to discuss mm -hmm. it with you in our next visit, along with some of the other things. But uh but I think you, you've got to be out of your mind not to, to do an RSS feed. An RSS feed is a really great tool. It's one of the, it's such a powerful tool that it's been suppressed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, 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 because typically RSS readers is what are what you use to capture the RSS feeds. And I'll let you talk about it in a bit. But, but it, Google had the best RSS reader out there. It's called Google Reader. And they, they, they disliked it so much because they knew the potential had, they discontinued it. <laughs> they discontinued it. That was so, and, and that you don't really hardly hear anyone talk about RSS fees, but it's, it is the way to get around social media and, and provide yeah. you with it, with the highly curated content of some of the best minds on the internet, like you. So you have got to be out of your mind. If you don't really regularly review what you, what you're producing on your site, because you are, clearly one of the best minds out there to help us understand what's going on. So I, I, I treasure your work and I, I greatly look forward to all your postings on, on your site. So get an RSS feed for a limited hangout. You've got to do that. You got, you got to hear it. Well, and, and everything else, because like you said earlier, it really is like a way to counter social media censorship because yeah. they're censoring stuff from the news feed so people don't see it. Essentially what you do with an R, 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 um, RSS feed is that you add the content creators or writers or whoever that you like, and you're creating your own uncensorable newsfeed. 
Yeah. At the it's, end of the day, it's brilliant. It really is the workaround. And more of us need to understand that. I've been actually, I've been using RSS feeds for almost 30 years. It's really the reason why we were able to find good content on our site because, you know, we've got all these easy accesses to the great content. So, uh, but, but why don't you tell people now how to get your book? Because it's available in a number of different formats and ways to purchase it. Uh, it is, it really is an encyclopedia. It's a sort of a foundation to help you understand the background of what's going on now to and a framework for all the future things that Whitney's going to be producing and revealing and helping us and helping uncover and understand that the, the levels that very few minds can put together. I mean, I don't know anyone that's doing this type of work like you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Well, what I'm trying to do in the book is is show the power structure as it is today, but sort of the origins of it. And I don't claim to be able to present 100% of the power structure, but key parts of it um, that are easily documented and provable. Um, so if you want to understand sort of where, you know, how things work in the U.S. or how they have worked for a number of years, you know, I think it's an important resource. It was originally intended to be one book, but it was always written in two parts. It ended up running long. Sorry about that. But uh, there was a lot to say. And she says with a grin. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I'm really sorry. <laughs> well, it ended up being like 100 years, you know, um, of, of history. So, um, you know, uh, like I mentioned, human 10 years to write this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe so, but, um, volume two is the Epstein focused stuff, but volume one is all the stuff before Epstein and the origin of intelligence, organized crime, which I think is really essential to not just understanding Epstein, but a lot of other stuff going on in the world today. Um, so if you're interested in, in buying both volumes, the best way to buy the physical copy, if you were in the continental U S is to go to the publisher's website, trinday.com, T-R-I-N-E-Day.com, um, and buy the bundle uh, where you can buy both books uh, for a significantly reduced price than buying them both separately. And people that buy the bundle will get volume two before volume two comes out on its own, which is in October. Um, so you'll get both books sooner. If you buy the bundle, uh, volume one on its own uh, comes out comes out uh, at the end of this month in a couple of weeks. Um, but if you buy the bundle, you may even get it a little earlier, uh, depending. So um, I would, you know, recommend that if you want it sooner, because the uh, there are going to be a, there is going to be an ebook and audio book available, uh, which are going to be both volumes in one. So essentially one book for for both of those, but they're not quite done yet. Um, they're in progress and, and will be available soon. Okay. So, uh, that may be the most cost-effective people for option and people that don't really care about having a physical copy. Uh, but there are, you know, several options. The best way to stay informed about, uh, the book is to sign up for the newsletter on my website. You can go to unlimitedhangout.com slash newsletter and any update about the book is there. And at the end of, uh, all the newsletters we're sending out, uh, you know, for this month and probably next month and, uh, probably a couple months after have something about the book at the bottom. Uh, if you're interested and we have an FAQ page on the website about the book and all other sorts of things, we're working yeah. with distributors in Europe, uh, just because the uh, international shipping from the U.S. to Europe is complicated and <laughs> getting more complicated all the time. So there's uh, definitely check the website for updates. I, I definitely would recommend a newsletter, although I don't get it uh, because I tend not to like to get stuff in my inbox. I, I use the RSS reader to, for all your content. Uh, and I think the RSS reader is superior to an email uh, because I don't know what email distribution content provider you're, you're using, but they... they they are, there are definitely problems with them and the delivery of them can be 
impaired. So there is a chance, and it could be a significant chance that even though you sign up for a newsletter, you're not going to get it. It's going to go wind up in a spam filter or, or yeah. provide the ISPs are not going to put it through. They're going to try to sabotage her in some way, but they cannot sabotage an RSS feed. They cannot sabotage it. You will get it 100%. So, so um, in the case of my website, the newsletter is self-hosted and self-published. So we don't depend on a company like MailChimp or any of those. No, that's ones. good to know, but they still, I mean, we do the same. No, no, you're, you're right. Time. And, and, and believe me, distribution of your of your emails is is huge it's a constant hassle that we've always got to modify and, and correct because there's they're, they're being marked to spam so frequently especially if you have larger and larger distribution mm-hmm. yeah and, and you got to get it into the box so it's really hard to do uh and rss is 100 percent. so as yeah. i said you've got just i i currently use feed reader uh, as I, I think one of the best RSS readers, but there's a lot of other ones. And once you once you understand the power of an RSS reader, you'll never go back. It's especially it's the way around. Uh, I think it became somewhat disenchanted. Many people came disenchanted with because of social media. But you do not want to use social media to get your news. You absolutely do not. Not anymore. Yeah. 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 It's a way. It's a workaround. So we're we are going to meet again and and uh, virtually uh, and discuss some of these intelligence connections to tech and the censorship that's been going on. Not just eliminating sites like yours and mine. Not sites, but the social media platforms uh, being banned and censored, but but the elimination of really important information that you need to know, that the whole world needs to know, that's being obscured, it's hidden, it's it's just essentially removed from the internet. So I, I, I definitely want to dive deep on that because I, I, I want the world to hear from your perspective and help us understand it because it's your understanding is so comprehensive and you're able to formulate solid recommendations like you just did in real time you didn't i'm surprised that wasn't in the book but (laughs) i mean because it's such a powerful message i mean i if you have a chance you may even want to update it because that that should be like the chapter 21 really should be because it's that is really why you're doing all this i mean that's the because when you have a message you have to have an action but what is the action as a Mm -hmm. what now that you know all this information what are you going to do and I, I, I couldn't have made a, a better summary and succinct recommendation that you can play. I'm, I'm really, I'm going to put a snippet of that. We're going to put that out. It's so good. <laughs> it is so good. So uh, I'm looking forward to our next conversation and uh, it, it, it's going to be fun. It really will be. And, and now, and you got to get, we don't have to, but I would encourage you to get the book and just know it's a long, long book and it's just really detailed, but it's, it's powerful. And Whitney, you're the best. As I said, I'm so grateful for all your work and, and what you're, what you've done and continue to do. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.